Turb Alper and the Tijuana Brass. I'm Carson Sestuli. This is Fangraphs Audio. It is a testament to the skills of uh, the guest on this edition of Fangraphs Audio, the filmmaking skills, I should say, of this guest, that uh, my wife enjoyed the film that he made uh, along with two colleagues, uh, despite the fact that uh, she does not care for baseball. And this is uh, what you, one could reasonably call a baseball film. The film is Pelotero Ball Player, and the, uh, the guest... Also, one-third of the directoria, directoria, not a word, is uh, John Paley. And the film uh, Pelotero is a story about the Dominican Republic. Uh, it's a story about two characters in particular. That's Miguel Sano, of course, who's the uh, uh, the very celebrated prospect for the Minnesota Twins. Uh, and also John Carlos Batista, who's the less celebrated prospect for the Houston Astros. It's a story about them, and it's also a story about uh, social issues, and uh, ultimately it's a story about uh, people people being people, and that's ultimately probably what gives it uh, its wide-ranging appeal. In what follows, I have a conversation with John Paley, not only about that film, uh, Pelotero Ballplayer, which was released a couple years ago now, uh, but also about the future of a similar film, which is the Miguel Sano story, which is a, a film upon which uh, Paley and his colleagues have been working the sequel, essentially, which will uh, follow Miguel Sano uh, into the United States and ideally, one assumes, into uh, Major League Baseball. Paley and I discuss um, the making of this film, uh, trying to create a narrative out of a documentary or with a documentary, the challenges involved in that. I also come about some of. Uh, I also ask him about some of the uh, finer points of the dealings between Major League Baseball and Dominican prospects. Uh, one note: if uh, John, if there's a slight echo to to Paley's voice, it's because he's actually talking to us uh, from the home of uh, Guagua Productions. He's literally uh, within arm's reach of um, his fellow directors Ross Finkel and Trevor Martin. Um, so uh, perhaps it uh, does less in terms of audio. Uh, but it will give you a sense that he's actually uh, right in the middle of things. Uh, so exciting is what that is. It is um, Fangraphs Audio, features director of Pelotero, co-director of Pelotero, John Paley, and it begins right now. appear on the podcast before, but um, it's I, it's a lot of it has to do with the fact that I'm a moron. I don't think it has any. It's not your not your fault. Well, we also when the film came out, you know, we were dealing with a lot of limited resources and marketing it and getting it out there. So I don't know if you ever even got called from our PR people. Oh no 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 they no they, we're low down on the totem pole. No, that's not it. Doesn't even register. That's fine. But I'm actually. Um, I think maybe there are actually some advantages, and I don't know from your side if maybe that's the case too, but maybe some advantages to kind of doing it a couple of years out out away from the film. Yeah, um, definitely. Because There's a I, lot of a lot of perspective a couple of years down the road. Right, and I guess the first thing I want to say, and I think this is actually really important, and I don't, and I actually don't want to gloss over it because I'm just as much as I'm interested in the content, I'm also sort of interested in um, the sort of the demands of the documentary film, like, you know, like the sort of uh, aesthetics of documentary. Sure. Yeah. And uh, my guess is that you have thoughts on that as well. 
Um, but yeah, <laughs> the, 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 the first thing I want to say is actually it's just like it's a um, it's a nice film to watch. Um, and I know that for this reason is that uh, my wife, who's an intelligent uh, person, but not necessarily one who's um, I'd say particularly invested in baseball. Um, mm-hmm. We we sat down and we watched it together, and um, she enjoyed it very much uh, for the same reasons that I uh, that I did, and also different reasons too. I mean, just just on the, the sort of uh, on its merits as a narrative and, and the way it was told. Yeah, well, you know that is one of the biggest uh, surprises that we got after the film was released. Was we always knew that that baseball diehard fans would get a kick out of this. I mean, this is such a intimate look into a world that is so close to us, but so shrouded in mystery. But what's really been a pleasant surprise is how often I hear this story about the baseball fan's wife who loves the film. And that is extremely satisfying to us because, you know, we, we are sports fans, obviously, but really we wanted to tell a good story, a universal story, one that goes beyond the diehard fans and connects with everybody out there. So I'm really happy to hear you say that. So in, in terms of creating this, and, and I'll just um, – for, for those uh, listeners who haven't seen the film, uh, it's very quickly, very, very quickly. It's a, uh, it follows um, uh, uh, Miguel, uh, Miguel Sano and also uh, – who is, of course, one of the top prospects in baseball right now. And also a, a lesser-known prospect named uh, Jean, Jean-Carlos Batista leading up uh, – in the Dominican leading up to the July 3rd uh, signing date, which is like the crazy – um, crazy day in baseball. Yeah, um, July July second. July second, certainly. July second right. is the day that makes the Dominican baseball world go round. The way the system is structured there is that no player can sign until he is 16 years old on July second of the year he turns 16 years old. So what it does is it makes it basically an opening gate for all the teams who are interested in signing players down there to just jump in and spend their budgets. So what it does is two things. It creates this driven up value for the prospects who are the top two or three in the country because you have, you know, it's not like the draft where you have a slot value but only one team can negotiate. You have 30 teams bidding on each of these guys. However, uh, however, it also creates this incredibly depressed secondary market where anyone who doesn't sign on July 2nd their value immediately plummets to way below it would be normal. Now, since the film came out about two years ago, they've actually changed quite a bit in the Dominican Republic. And what they've done is they've now tied the caps on how much teams can spend down there to draft position and how much they spend in the draft. So it's it's changed a little bit since the film, but generally all of the kind of big picture economic truths are are still there. Right. And so I would assume that in terms of constructing this as a film for people to watch and again as a as a film which would transcend um you know uh, baseball nerds uh do, do you have you obviously have a idea about uh, constructing a narrative and I'm curious as to I mean this is a maybe a broader question again about documentary but you do this obviously by a process of inclusion and exclusion you have you know whatever X minutes of film or video and you say we're going to put this in and we're not going to put this in we're going to follow this this uh, strain and we're going to ignore this other one and I'm I'm curious because you you also have a couple of comrades I think as well I'm curious as to 
to the process for, for doing that in this particular case? Yeah, I do. I have two co-directors, uh, Ross Finkel and Trevor Martin, and there were actually the process of shooting this film. There were four of us who lived in the Dominican Republic for four, for nine months, uh, you know, at the fields every day, just like the players, eight, 10, 12 hours in the sun, kind of filming baseball. So we really immersed ourselves in it. But yeah, you know, the, the process of storytelling in documentary, people often say that you know, the story comes out in the editing room. And that is very much the case. I mean, we shot uh, every day for nine months in 2009, and we really ended up with, we estimated about five, 600 hours of footage, which had to be cut down into this 80, 84-minute movie. So uh, it's quite a bit that ends up on the cutting room floor. And, you know, telling an engaging story is all about how you do that. The biggest thing that happened over the course of that time editing time period was that we cut characters from the film. We initially started following five ball players, of which only two ended up in the film. And you know, uh there were various reasons we made that decision. You know, one of the characters who we were following about four months in, he fell off the map, he wouldn't answer our phone calls, he stopped showing up at the fields where he plays. And it turns out that, you know, his trainer had been caught in a big age falsification scandal and he wanted nothing to do with the film after that. So he just kind of distanced us. Some of the other characters, you know, they had, we followed them for nine months. They had really compelling, intriguing stories, but we just had to make the cut down to two for practical reasons that, you know, it's only only so much screen time and you want to tell a quick, efficient story. And, you know, uh, one of the characters in particular, a player who ended up signing with the Astros eventually, but, you know, he had a really sad story that he was not one of these top guys. He was just somebody who baseball was his only option. He came from the poorest sugar, sugar mining town in the region. And baseball was really his only chance, uh, much like, you know, thousands of other kids and he worked, dropped out of school. He worked for years, but the whole time that we were filming him, nothing happened. And that's a really tragic, interesting story, but it's not a story that plays out well in the course of an 80 minute film. You know, that's one of the things to keep in mind is that we focus on these two kids out of these hundred thousand who are training to be peloteros or ball players. And these two are really the exception from the role. They're the unusual ones. They're the ones who teams are falling over themselves to sign for, you know, millions of dollars in Miguel's case or hundreds of thousands in Young Carlos. But the reality is that those hundred thousand kids who drop out of school to do this, the vast, vast majority are, are like the third kid who we cut from the film. They never will have a real bidding war going over them. If they're lucky, they'll sign a small contract for ten or fifteen thousand dollars where they'll basically be throwing BP to the other, you know, the the more valuable prospects. And if they pan out, then they pan out, and it's great for the teams. And if not, you know, they're back out in the job market with no real skills to show for it. I, I, one could get cynical, and I wonder if, if this makes you cynical. Um, and you mentioned a, a, a potential narrative following a third player, uh, a third player who, for example um, – you know, uh, is not about to and, and doesn't end up uh, sort of uh, climbing the prospect charts the way that Miguel Sano did, for example. Um, 
it seems to me that that at, to some degree, and, and maybe maybe this is incorrect, but it doesn't affect the quality of your film, but it might affect the number of people that ultimately see it. Uh, part of that might depend on Miguel Sano's success, right? If he is uh, if he turns into one of the best players in the major leagues, people will say here's an interesting film that includes a very young Sano. Whereas, Definitely, and, and we've you know we've already seen that start to happen just with his rise through the prospect ranks. Is the film which is now available on Netflix? Subtle plug. Uh, <laughs> you could do less subtle plugs too. It's all right. It's not a problem. Um, the film which is now available on Netflix has really found a second life now that people are starting to discover who Miguel is, and that realization was actually one of the big realizations that we had that we decided to keep following Miguel. We really realized that the ending of Ballplayer Pelotero, it's not an ending. It's a beginning. He signs a contract, and now he is a long way from the major leagues where millions of people will hopefully one day know his name and follow his career. And about four years ago, while we were editing Pelotero, we made a decision to keep following Miguel, to keep filming with him. And we've been doing that for four and a half years now. And we have that 500 hours ter- has turned into well over a thousand, uh, following him all the way through his first trip to the United States in spring training, playing rookie ball in Elizabeth in Tennessee and Fort Myers, Florida. And this past season climbing all the way up to double A playing in the futures game and being on the verge of making it to the majors. So we are very much into production on the sequel and really think we have quite another story to tell with Miguel. Now, would it, would it have been difficult? Uh, and you're, you're allowed to tell me to shove it at any point, too. I should remind you <laughs> that. Um, would it have been difficult if you were going to tell the story about that, that third player? Would that be a harder film to make just because of the realities of uh, you know, distribution and, and, um, and the commercial film market? You know, I don't think it would have been a harder film to make. Uh, you know, we, we did make that film. We shot the whole film. We just didn't edit it that way because at the end of the day, it is hard to tell a 90 minute story about something that somebody that nothing happens to. You know, his, his story is much more typical of everybody in the Dominican Republic, which is that he didn't sign while we were there at least. And he didn't have, you know, the big tryout or the big negotiation or the big scandal. He just didn't make it. And that's a heartbreaking story. And that is the kind of story that underlays the drama of Pelotero, that you know these kids are desperate, that you know this is their only chance here already. We felt that we could make that come through in the subtext of the other two characters and then wouldn't, face the challenge of sitting you down with a third character who's going to take up 20, 25 minutes of valuable screen time and nothing's going to happen. Right, right, right. Um, I should warn you too, um, I'm presently in France and uh, owing to my internet connection, uh, it's a possibility that I could just hang up on you at any moment. Uh, (laughs) It's not because I'm disgusted, uh, most likely. That is totally okay. And I do apologize for all the sniffling. I've got a bit of a cold, and uh, it just dropped to about seven degrees here in New York. So. Oh, right, right, right. No, no, it's uh, it's it's even more raw because of that. It, this is a raw interview. Um, <laughs> this uh, is the real stuff. Yeah. Now, I actually i I mentioned that I'm in France. I don't speak uh, French particularly well, um, and I know that 
it makes it this is not uh, this is not a genius observation, but it makes it harder to communicate with people. Um, and even I know my wife speaks very good French, but sometimes uh, it's difficult for her to. Um, she doesn't speak it like like a French person, right? So like oh, she yeah. speaks very good uh, academic French, but like people know that she's not French because she doesn't know slang, etc. And so I'm curious, actually, to that point, f- for you, even if you had studied Spanish, I, I think I, I know you grew up an Orioles fan. I think is that right? I did, yes, very much so. So are you from <laughs> are, you, are you from that area then? Or? Yeah, I, I grew up outside of Baltimore. Yeah, okay. Uh, I took I had a little bit of high school Spanish, but certainly nothing to brag about. And um, as well as my partner Ross also had taken some high school Spanish, and then we realized early on in this project that we needed someone who could kind of carry the load in that department. So we. We ended up hooking up with our third co-director, Trevor Martin, who had uh, taken – speaks pretty fluent Spanish, had made two films in Colombia previously – Colombia in South America. Yeah, right. Not, and, not South uh, Carolina where, yeah. where Spanish is rampant. Yes, right. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, you know, so for the first couple months, Trevor was really doing all of the talking while Ross and I got up to speed with our language skills. But even so, you know – the Dominican dialect of Spanish is a special breed. It is probably about as far away from, you know, the mother tongue of Spanish as you, as you could think. It is, and especially because the people we're hanging out with, you know, we're all of a lower socioeconomic class and speak a different type of Dominican Spanish, even than general Dominican Spanish, with a lot of slang, a lot of street words that are not used anywhere else in the world. So there was a huge learning curve even for Trevor, who spoke Spanish, to be able to communicate. A lot of that process looked like us rolling around listening to the latest Dominican rap and then (laughs) writing down the words we didn't understand and asking people about them, which were always, you know, slang, hilarious, not so nice words. But that is how people talked out there. Yeah, right. Well, that's the interesting (laughs) thing about it. I mean, and I know that, like, I know that, for example, my wife has started reading, like, like she's now made it like almost an academic study of Elle magazine, for example. Uh, yeah. Like, because this has, like, you know, interviews with uh, people and uh, this is the, you know, this is sort of the closest you can get to, to picking up the language. You, you actually have to make it, – it, it inverts, I guess, what an institution would usually do because, as you mentioned, like, you, you study Spanish in college. This is like Castilian Spanish, right? Right. Yeah, it's a totally different thing. Right. So, you know, we were really thrown into our element, not just language wise, but, you know, trying to wrap our head around the subject at hand as well. We, you know, we, we talk about the first three or four months we spent there as our, our education, uh, because all of the perceptions that we had about what Dominican baseball was like, what this system, how this system worked, everything was wrong. Everything that we had been told <laughs> by ESPN, by MLB, every single thing was just dead wrong. So we really would spend every single day, you know, we would do all our filming in the morning and then we would, after practice, after all the, the Peloteros went home, we would sit at Astin, one of the characters in the film, we would sit at his field and drink this Dominican drink called Morir Soñando, which means to die in a dream. It's like an orange sherbet-esque drink. And uh, he would just tell us stories about 
the baseball system and how it worked. And, you know, it really took almost four months for us to begin to understand all of these very complicated forces at play. And it wasn't until the climactic scene in the film, which I won't spoil, happens to Miguel that uh, we really saw all of these forces in action. And right. we could see how Major League Baseball has created a system to its own advantage. They've written the rules to let them sign as many baseball players as possible for as little money as possible with little to no social responsibility. Yeah. So, uh, so to that point, to, uh, to some degree, and uh, there's a character in the film who, if I'm not mistaken, is still very active in baseball, and that's uh, Rene Gallo. Not, not only is he very active in baseball, he is celebrated as one of the greatest foreign scouts in in baseball. I well, mean, yeah, actually, yeah, because I just <laughs> actually saw like it was just last month. I think there was an article at Baseball America, something to the effect of Rene Gallo. Uh, finding uh, finding gems in yeah uh, you know he is treated like a god down there he's been doing this for 20 years and his tactics are ruthless uh if you would ask me i would say immoral but you know some people just say he's doing his job and he's willing to do whatever it takes to do his job yeah this is it's it's a it's a machiavellian landscape i think we can agree on that it certainly is yeah, yeah. so but I guess that here's the point, and, and I don't know if this uh, is going to sort of receive a f- follow-up in the sequel, but um, – and this actually I should say, I mentioned to uh, edit, uh, managing editor of Fangraphs, Dave Cameron, who's a smart baseball mind. I mentioned that, that we were going to talk, um, uh-huh. and, and he was particularly interested um, in sort of the Rene Gallo portion of the story, and, and it is interesting because you have at some cases sort of like um, – sort of uh, – Hidden, you know, a hidden camera, hidden camera type footage uh, right. of of yeah. Gaio, and you, so you, you know, the, there is the insinuation. I don't know if it's uh, if you would say it's ex- expressly put or it's at least implied heavily that he's doing something uh, underhanded, potentially illegal. Um, uh, it seems, you know, for an American watching it, you say, "Well, look at he's been caught. So is he in trouble?" And as you've just mentioned, no, he's celebrated, but do, do you ever envision a world in which Rene Gaio or someone like Rene Gaio is, gets in trouble for these particular things? You know, I, I really don't. And the most interesting thing here is that along with the, you know, baseball fan's wife phenomena, one thing we've noticed since the film was released is that the Rene Gaio character is really a reflection of the viewer. And we expected uh, a certain reaction to that. And the reaction across the board is really that, you know, you have your diehard liberal looks at it and says, like, that's so exploitative. What can I swear? What an asshole. Yeah, sure. You can uh, do that. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and then, you know, you have the more, you know, straightforward businessman take on it as well, which is people say, like, yeah, it's not nice, but he's just doing his job. And it's been really interesting to see that reaction play out in the audience and that people really see, take their own viewpoints and their own personalities to that character and to what he does and judge him in that way. And that was something that we were never expecting. Uh, as far as Rene Gallo ever, you know, getting punished, it's just imaginary. I, I mean... <laughs> 
There's there's no doubt in our minds that Major League Baseball knew exactly what he was doing, that they even cooperated with what he was doing to, to achieve their own goals. And it is completely complicit in every way that <laughs> not only would he not be punished, there was never an investigation into what happened here. You know, when the film came out, Bud Selig was asked about it at the MLB All-Star Game press conference by one of the AP reporters. And he said the film is completely incorrect. You know, it's it's out of date and it's false, which is, is, is crazy because Major League Baseball never looked into it. They never opened an investigation. The fact of the matter is that in the Dominican Republic, there is no system of checks and balances. There's no way for a team who gets in trouble to be audited. There's no way for a player who has decided that he is not his age to appeal the process. There actually, I shouldn't say that. There is an appeals process, which is the results you can pretty much predict how they go. I think there's been one player who, uh, who was overturned and, and I think it took him about two or three years and his bonus fell from the millions to under a hundred thousand. So even if you do manage to overturn these appeals, you the player is the one who loses. Do you do you think that sporting journalism has I mean well there's there are a lot of answers to this question obviously. Do you think that there is a moral imperative for journalists to cover this and um more thoroughly? Absolutely. Um, you know, I, a lot, a lot of ink has been spilt about the death of sports journalism, about, you know, how we don't know our professional athletes anymore. And that is what it is. It's living in the modern world of teams protecting their image, players protecting their image, and, you know, the 24-hour news cycle. But there are still a ton of reporters, a ton of filmmakers, a ton of journalists doing great work about the important side of sports. We all love sports. Sports is an economic engine, and it means a lot of different things to a lot of different people. Uh, stories like Pelotero, to me, is why I'm a sports fan. It's about hope, it's about dreams, but it's also about the realities of this thing that we all tune into every week. So that's why we wanted to make this film, was to tell that kind of story. I don't think that kind of reporting is is dead or gone, uh, but I do think that you need to know where to look to find it. Now, with regard to, uh, and I'm not going to keep you all day. I mentioned that, but um, I, it, again, this is uh, very interesting. Uh, the, the the film Pelotero, the, the edition number one, ends with uh, you know Miguel Sano signing with the Twins, and he's very happy. And of course. Um, uh, most baseball fans, and certainly people who directed their attention to this particular podcast, will know that Sano is a celebrated prospect. Uh, if you've, if if there's a, if there's a sequel starring Sano that will, as you've already sort of mentioned, uh, involved uh, making stops, involve making stops in places like Elizabethton, Tennessee, uh, Beloit, Wisconsin. <laughs> um, it's, uh, uh, you know, uh, I mean, Fort Myers, Florida. Uh, th- these are places that um, Miguel Sano won't necessarily have seen, and p- places it should be said, just like any places uh, anywhere, which have their own 
uh, unique uh, cultures and issues. And I, I guess I'm curious as to what degree, to what degree you you could sort of use in this next film, to what degree you sort of explore this juxtaposition between Miguel Sano, who comes from his own situation, which you've covered in the first film, to another one where he's, uh, like you did originally, he's becoming acquainted with a totally new language. And sure, um, yeah. he's becoming acquainted, and maybe you and the filmmakers are also becoming acquainted. I don't know how much time you spent in Elizabethton, Tennessee before, <laughs> but you have yeah. now, and I'm curious as to how that how that works. Yeah, you know, the storyline of the second film, just um, just like Pelotero, it's a baseball movie, but we're not talking about the game or the play. It's, it's not about that. Uh, it's really about the story off the field, that... Miguel is a special player um, who has had a meteoric rise through the minors and hopefully one day soon will be hidden out of the park at Target Field. But throughout that whole journey, we've witnessed a really interesting process as he has you know, moved away from home for the first time, had to learn a language, had to find his way amid a team where he is the youngest person by two or three years every single time, been heaped amazing pressure on him from all angles, from family, agents, team, everybody. You know, he has undergone a really remarkable journey, which we look forward to telling in the sequel, which is tentatively titled The Miguel Sano Story. So is this going to become uh, – uh, I forget the director of these films, but it's the 7-Up series where uh... – <laughs> You know, I, we are obviously huge fans of the 7-Up series. Uh, it comes as no surprise to anyone, I'm sure, that Hoop Dreams was somewhat of an inspiration for Pelotera. And this, I think it's safe to say that uh, after the Miguel Sano story, we're done with baseball. Okay. <laughs> we're not going to uh, – we're like a geriatric Miguel Sano 50 years from now. <laughs> you know, I'm, I'm not going to rule anything out, but uh, – you know, I think we have a lot of other interests as filmmakers, and this has been a really fascinating journey. It's dragged on for quite some time, over five or six years, and we are really looking forward to bringing this movie to the public and taking it from there. Now, you obviously, uh, even if there's just one director's name on a film, it's by definition a collaborative process. You have three director's names, and so it's – it's there's it's the, the, I guess the collaborative element is even um, more thoroughly emphasized. Uh, I'm curious to what to if you personally, John Paley, if you see yourself, uh, I, do you see yourself working with these guys again in the future, or are there sort of particular interests that would uh, dovetail with with Pelotero and and you know honestly, and I don't think this is that cynical is the success you've had with it. You know, uh, actually, it is pretty crazy that I moved down to the Dominican Republic with one good friend and one almost complete stranger, and five years later, we're still here sharing an office, sitting across from me as we speak, and we still run a business together. We work together on everything, and, you know, it certainly is unusual to have three directors on a film, but we really think of ourselves more as a collective than everything else that was forged in our time in the Dominican Republic. We, when we went down there, we didn't have the niceties, the, you know, uh, support that most film crews do. You know, we, we didn't have the luxury of having a director and a producer and a cameraman and the sound op. 
we had to do everything. And that meant that on any given day, any one of us was doing any of the above, often two crews in two separate places on the island at the same time. You know, we didn't have the luxury of being able to have defined roles. And in that process, we really discovered that the three of us work very well together. We have a shorthand and we all complement each other's skills. So we've really carried that over. And our second film, which came out this past October, also shares a byline by the three of us. Uh, and as will the Miguel Sano story and pretty much every other project we work on. Okay. Would you like to do, uh, just b- before you go, would you like to do some shameless uh, shilling for any projects? Sure. Yeah, I would like to do that. <laughs> yeah, you can catch Ballplayer Pelotero on Netflix or iTunes. Uh, if you're interested in hearing more about the sequel that will follow Miguel Sano all the way through the minors until he makes it, uh, you can check that out at miguelsanostory.com. You can sign up for our email list is the best way to keep on top of everything. Or follow us on Twitter at, at Pelotero Movie. Oh, there you go. That's easy. All right. Well, well why don't you stick around uh, for a second, but uh, we're going to say goodbye to the listeners. Uh, um, so, th- But I want to say thank you uh, so much, John Paley. Thanks, Carson. Thanks for having me. I'm a huge fan of fan graphs, so happy to do it anytime. All right. That is uh, John Paley, uh, one of uh, three high-powered movie directors of uh, the documentary Pelotero Ballplayer and of the uh, forthcoming sequel, uh, which uh, is in the future that uh, follows Miguel Sano. Um, that's John Paley. I'm Carson Stooley. This has been Fangraphs Audio. Thank you.